0: Asher Lehman and welcome to the Spoondrift podcast. The word "spoondrift" describes a spray of water that a strong gust of wind can blow from the top of a wave. Here on the Spoondrift, I talk about the spoondrift from the ocean of ideas. There are really no bounds to what might be talked about. The goal is is just to, to unearth new perspectives and inspire curiosity. On this week's episode, I'm going to talk about straws—the weird things that people can stick in their ears big, earthy protrusions, and time management, and even more specifically, how I am bad it. Yep, that's how this is going to go. <laughs> England has just made a significant step in terms of use of plastic within their borders. As of October 1st, 2020, there's a nationwide ban on single-use plastic straws, stirrers, and Q-tips in England. Quick note here. This information is coming from the BBC, and I would just like to point out that the author of the article, when they were talking about Q-tips, they used the word cotton buds. (laughs) I just found that so funny. Truth be told, um, when I was actually reading through the article the first time, I had no idea what they meant by these cotton buds, so I'm just reading through it. Okay, I understand what straws are, I understand what straws are, but buds... No, must be some other plastic product that's used. Maybe a British thing. I don't know. Then I, I, I looked up the meaning of the word cotton bud, and turns out it's just another way of talking about Q tips or cotton swabs, as they're sometimes called, probably more formally. And tja, my oh my. I just looked up Q tips, and uh, turns out what I'm calling them is also not the proper term because that's a brand name. Q-tips are, that's a, it's a company that makes cotton swabs. All my life, I've been using a proper noun to describe a common object when there was a more appropriate general noun without even knowing it. Ugh, what is this? Cotton buds. Oh, man. Cotton pals. Good old cotton sticks. I don't know what they should be called. All kinds of names. All right, enough of that. The BBC is reporting that prior to this law going into place, the people in England used an estimated of 4.7 billion plastic straws, 316 million plastic stirs, and 1.8 billion plastic-stemmed cotton friends. (laughs) But not anymore. Except for sometimes. There are some exceptions to the law. For example, hospitals, bars, and restaurants can give out plastic straws to people with disabilities and medical conditions that require them. Okay, makes sense, I guess. Personally, I think this move is a pretty good one. The article points out how the banned objects are in fact actually just a very small fraction of the single-use plastic used. But, I mean, you got to start somewhere. And this kind of brings up the, the thought of to what point do you have to rely on a government to ban these things. I know a lot of it comes down to cost. A lot of companies, especially restaurants, plastic straws are going to be less expensive than, say, paper straws. And when you're buying these things in bulk, um, saving any penny you can somewhere, it adds up in, a while, in, in the long run. So I can see why companies like that do, do tend to buy these disposable things. But I, I know here in the U.S., I mean, there's been a lot of talk of, of banning plastic straws and other single-use things and I, I believe some states have but not everywhere you, you still get plastic straws but then you do come across a couple of restaurants here and there <laughs> if you uh, well used to whenever I did go to restaurants not so much anymore but you do come across a couple of restaurants that use paper straws instead of the plastic ones that you can put them in a compost pile um, if you do throw them out they they will disintegrate in a shorter period of time than plastic straws. A government banning them is good, and that will ensure, well, unless you want to face heavy fines, that all the companies and stuff do not use certain things. But at what point is um, you know a company able to follow through with their own restrictions? And there are people, there are companies that do that, and I, I think that's pretty neat. Although. Okay, I will say this. When a government does ban things, what it does is it makes it easier (laughs) for everyone to make that decision. No longer does someone have to um, cough up extra money to pay for paper straws as opposed to plastic ones. Now you just get rid of all the options. You no longer have the choice. You can't buy the cheaper plastic ones. You have to buy the more expensive paper ones. And hopefully, by eliminating the plastic possibilities, that will also drive down the cost of the more environmentally friendly options. And that, in turn, will make it a bit more attractive for all companies and organizations to better participate in this trend of environmental friendliness. Interesting dynamic there. Government regulation versus personal motivation. Now onto a story that rocks. I might just be breaking it to you. It's full of cold, hard (laughs) facts. I want to talk about large chunks of stone that just don't want to fall over. Or, more formally, I want to talk about precariously balanced rocks. And precariously balanced rocks is the official name. In fact, it's sometimes shortened to PBR standing for you know precariously balanced rocks you may have seen some of them before perhaps in pictures maybe even yourself while at a state park or a national park or outside (laughs) i don't think i've personally seen one but i know i've seen them in pictures and what these are they're just really big rocks that look like they're balanced they look like like they could tip over if the wind hits them wrong or a giant animal thumps their tail off against them; it just fall right over. But they don't; they're just standing there, strangely, all by themselves, not supported by anything. It's kind of a, a bit of a mystery as to why they haven't tipped over. Well, truth is, there's a little bit; their their placement is a bit more firm than what it would take for just the wind to knock them over. But still, they're they're pretty loose. Water erosion has actually caused the base of it to narrow down, making it look so precariously balanced. And So they, they are not as solid as, say, a cliff. Doctors Dylan and Anna Rudd actually took notice to how strange it is that these rocks haven't tipped over and thought, you know, what could this mean about the seismic activity of the areas where they formed? Interesting thought. Okay, there's these big rocks. They look like they might should have fallen over, but they haven't what would have caused them to fall over? Definitely earthquakes. If an earthquake was to shake the earth wherever one of these rocks was, it would probably tip over. And doctors Dylan and Ingrid were like, okay, if this rock is here, you know what? This might actually mean that maybe this area is not so prone to seismic activity. And they, they took that idea and they ran with it. They're actually now using this, this thought, To characterize the seismic activity of certain areas, especially areas that are being considered as a potential construction site for things like a power plant, or even a bit more specifically, a nuclear power plant, because these are areas that you do not want earthquakes to happen a lot at, because you you don't want the building to be damaged. And in the case of a nuclear power plant, you don't want a nuclear problem. So if you could pick an area with little to no expectation of earthquakes you can a reduce your insurance cost if you're having to run a power plant you got to insure it the less likelihood that there is going to be an earthquake the less money you have to pay which is good another thing of course avoid the thing being taken down by an earthquake that would be bad other um Things that might benefit from this knowledge could be the construction of a major dam or a bridge. So engineers, <laughs> um, yeah, might be something to look at. So it's generally expected. When looking to build these um, sensitive buildings, what geologists usually have to do is when they're looking at a site that is a potential placement for the building, they have to go out, they have to They have to do what's called a probabilistic seismic hazard analysis, and then they can come up with information on how likely it is that an earthquake is going to happen. Now, they're adding another layer to this this process of narrowing down a construction location. Let's look for PBRs. And this process is, they, they take a look at a couple things. First off, what they do is they construct whenever they find a a PBR. They they construct a 3D model of the rock itself. And they can use information from the appearance of the rock and they can kind of get an idea for the strength of the rock itself. And then what they do is they calculate what they call the age of fragility. Now what this is, is it's it's, it's a process where they analyze the, out, the outer surface of the rock itself. Now, cosmic rays, whenever they hit oxygen atoms in quartz minerals, specifically Schertz quartz minerals, which is a hard, fine-grained, sedimentary rock, typically of biological origin, but not always, they generate an element beryllium-10. Now, if you can count the number of beryllium-10 atoms... On the block's surface, you can estimate how long the stone has been there and exposed to those cosmic rays, exposed to light. And, of course, that stone being there kind of then implies that there haven't been a whole lot of earthquakes in that area in that specific amount of time. And with that information, you can kind of see how long it's been since that area has had a major earthquake. A reason that this methodology is so attractive is because a lot of the buildings, like power plants and stuff, they have to be located by a water source, and a water source is often an area where you can't go digging in order to look at fault lines. And if you if you can avoid having to dig by just looking for the precariously balanced rocks, that would be a big that would be a good thing. <laughs> And that's why precariously balanced rocks are now potentially being used as a sort of a a backwards seismometer, Or, as Anna Rudd explains it in this article, they can be kind of thought of as an inverse seismometer. Instead of measuring when an earthquake happens, they serve as an indicator of when earthquakes have not happened. Kind of neat. Goes to show that looking at normal things a different way can actually kind of feed you some some new perspectives on things and provide some insight into events that you didn't really think that they could. Three, two, one. Time management is a funny thing and time management is something I have so much room for improvement on and I'm finding that out beyond any shadow of a doubt. And I can rhyme every time. Try as I might, find a rhyme that's in my sight. Try real hard to spit it out, but not scream and shout. Okay. Anyway, time management is is kind of weird. Uh, I I have this. I'm very. I'm a very detail-oriented person. I'm I'm one to comb through a problem, looking for any and all details, and I will spend the time looking for tiny mistakes. <laughs> I'm not one to just blow through, okay, yeah, that, 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 that works, okay, uh-huh. Yeah, no, that's not me. Let's look at this through the lens of a math problem, very specific. I will do a math problem in terms of all symbols, avoiding all numbers at all costs until a very, very, very extreme end, hoping that I can cancel any constants out, any variables. If I can cancel things out, that's very good. I think I picked this habit up probably in high school where, well... I can't really name specifically why or where, but my physics class comes to mind. I wanted to make sure, I think my teacher emphasized it too, that if if you work something out with, with the variables, then you can generally apply it to anything later, which is a good thing. And also, rounding errors was a big problem, because now oh, that might be it. Okay, in all of my physics classes ever <laughs> that I've had, I've always used an online problem submission system. It was called Lawn Kappa. And you would work out a problem. It would, it would prompt you. Then you would solve the problem. Then you would input your answer. And <laughs> what this, this system made me keenly, keenly aware of was that if if you did plug in numbers early on, you got an answer for a part of a problem, you would have to use that answer in another part of your problem. And so you're plugging in an answer that you probably didn't write out every single decimal place, and so you round it a little bit. Then you use that number again, then you get another big long decimal, then you use that number and another part, you get the idea, and your answer comes out a few decimal places off. But long kappa, bad news. Long kappa doesn't like that. And we were limited on the number of attempts that we had on a problem. I think it was usually around 10. I quickly found out that I don't like wasting those attempts. I want to make sure that... Uh, either my answer is wildly wrong, or it is correct. Because if it's not, if it's somewhere in between, if it's just off by a couple of decimal places, there goes an attempt, and there goes the opportunity to accidentally make a mistake, which I've treasured. <laughs> so that made me avoid using those rounded decimals anywhere. <laughs> and I may have taken it to the extreme, but now I do that with everything. When I work out a problem, I don't ever plug in numbers until I absolutely, positively have to at the very end. A good thing about this is I'm usually uh, very detail-aware. I am analytical in approaching a problem. A downside of this is I spend a lot of time checking my work, which is a problem as far as time is concerned. I also can spend a lot of time, if I know my answer is wrong, I will, I will sift through my work multiple times and have no problem spending one, two, three, four hours on a single problem. I am perfectly content with doing that now. Okay. I shouldn't say perfectly content. It can be incredibly annoying, but I am fully capable of committing that amount of time to a single problem. And I've done it, uh, innumerable times, often to no avail. I often ended up like searching through the problem, not finding anything, having to getting very frustrated. Sometimes, um, if, if there's someone else that I'm working on the problem with, that helps immensely. Getting a second pair of eyes to look at my work, that usually ends up, you know, they they just take one glance. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's not supposed to be squared. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Why didn't I see that? <laughs> and just recently, I have spent a lot of time on a single problem with seemingly no progress. And as infuriating as that could be at times. It's, I kind of appreciate that I'm able to do it, as weird as that sounds. And I like that I do. I, I wouldn't want to change that about me. That is something that I like about the way I solve problems. And it's also kind of neat because sometimes working problems out, using only letters and variables, it provides some insight into the mechanics of a problem that you might not see otherwise, if you're just plugging in numbers. Because numbers are numbers, but variables, if if something cancels out, it would cancel out in the numbers, but it would be hidden in a lump number. But when you're working in variables, and you see gravity cancel out, and you're like, wait a minute, that means gravity doesn't matter in this case? Or you see mass cancel out, and you're just like, whoa. This object could be as, it could have the mass of three empire state buildings or it could have the mass of a feather and that wouldn't change the outcome of this problem. Insights like that are things that you only see real clearly when working things out only in variables. Now, I know I know people and I understand the, the, the attractiveness of this approach. Plugging in numbers and then plugging in those numbers elsewhere is so much easier and would cause me so much less headache, <laughs> I think, because I would avoid all of those hours looking through variables that are often involved in rather complicated algebraic simplification. If you just plug in a number, the fractions go away, the crazy multiplication and division goes away. You don't have to worry about it. It's just a number you plug in elsewhere. But yeah, there, there's a bit of, there's some benefit to doing everything in letters. And that's an that's a interesting complaint. Uh, The the more math you have to do, the less numbers there are usually involved. And use of variables is usually emphasized a bit more. So the more advanced mathematics becomes, the less and less numbers are actually involved. And that that is because if you don't use numbers, then the math that you do can generally apply to any situation. You just plug in values. And there is a sort of... (laughs) Beauty to that! I hate using that adjective, though. Let's replace it, because <laughs> the word beautiful is way overused in the math context. Just like elegant is overused, in my opinion, in computing. Like, my, oh my. Computing, I don't like the word elegant to be used with it. I can see clever. I can see interesting. I don't know, elegant. It just, In my mind, it doesn't fit. Anyway, so for math, let's come up with a new word for beautiful. If something is just beautiful... In math, let's say it's delightful. If something is, it, it works out in a really simple way, big complicated math problem simplifies down to something real simple, just say, oh, wow, that is so delightful. <laughs> delightful. It's such a light word. It's probably a good way to describe it, and it's probably why I think of it, because the word light is literally in it. But I associate the word delightful with the color yellow. I don't know why. It just sounds funny an amusing thing. to Talk about math with the word delightful. Wow, that math problem was so delightful. Anyway, time management. How do you balance <laughs> uh, attention to detail to simply getting things done? It's probably balanced. that I will never be completely struck in a perfect way, but at least the pursuit might get us somewhere. <laughs> this week, and extending a bit to next Monday, I have two albums that I'm looking to come out. First is Matzo with the album Illusion of Depth. The next is an album called Lifecycle <laughs> Destruction, and that's featuring music from various artists. Both of those musical collections would be American Electronic. Now for my music picks this week. Uh, first off is the song Bummer, Don't Feel Right <laughs> by 90s Kids, American Alternative. That is a really fun and carefree song. Uh, I, I like it a lot. Then "Don't Be Sad" by Tate McRae, American alternative. "Daylight" by JoJo, American uh, R&B. Yeah, I guess I'll go with that. "Dangerous" by Hands Like Houses. That's American rock. And "Land Escape" by The Blank Shop, and that's featuring Legion Ah, Korean indie. Movie by Jenny, J U N N Y. Korean alternative. No More by Kim Yo Han. Korean pop. And Bad Alive by Wave. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Spoondrift podcast. If you want to listen to the music that I talked about, you can check out my Spotify profile, The Spoondrift Podcast, and listen to the Spoondrift Episode 18 playlist. For more episodes of the Spoondrift, you can visit Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spinnaker Radio's home on the web, radio.unfspinnaker.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to keep up to date with everything to do with the Spoon Drift, you can follow me on Twitter at Spoondrift Pod. That's at Spoondrift Pod. Or on Instagram at Spoondrift Podcast. I hope to talk to you next week. Note of finality.